Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog, Unpickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my very first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my stories there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And on the show today, I have an amazing woman whose story I think is really going to move a lot of us. Her name is Vanessa Klugman, and she is from Resilience Recovery Coaching, and she joins us on the line today with her foot up on a pillow after uh, a little bit of an incident that she'll tell us about as well. So Vanessa, welcome to the show, and thank you for being here. Thanks so much, Jean. I'm really Uh, excited to be here today. I'm really glad you are too. And you know, it's so funny that um, you and I connected, you you had written to me, but already I had had a few people say, you need to get Vanessa Klugman on your show. You need to get her story shared. And then shortly after that, you wrote to me and I thought, yes, I guess I really definitely do need this lady. I need to hear your story. Um, so I'm really glad well, you're here. And, and uh, I know you have a, a lot to share. So Sure. So I'm going to go ahead and just go back to the beginning because I think it's important to understand how I got to where I did. So you can hear I have an accent. So I wasn't born here. I was born in South Africa. And I came from a family that really valued academic achievement and service to others. So there were tons of physicians in my family, um, nurses, social workers, speech pathologists. Um, and I came from a family, and my parents were very loving. They had a great marriage. They, I had three, two younger sisters. I was the oldest. And they encouraged us to excel and to really get do whatever we want, made us believe that we were able to do whatever we wanted to do in life, which was great. Um, but I took on a message from a very young age that my worth was related to and equated with my achievements. And I think the other message I took on also was that my worth was very much equated with um, helping others and doing for others um, as much as I possibly could. And so um, I decided really that I wanted to be a doctor when I was eight years old. So I made that decision and I never veered from that course. And, you know, looking back on it, like, how did I didn't know that I wanted to be a doctor when I was eight? Um, I think it was a number of reasons. I think I really, um, you know, I had a father who was a doctor and he was a great role model for me and that probably played a part in it. I had this um, idea that my, my worth was related to my achievements and so what better thing to become than a physician, which is such a great achievement. And I also had this um, real love and, under- and wish to understand the suffering um, of, the, of humans, of human beings, of like what makes people struggle, what makes people suffer, why do they suffer, and how does the human body and the human mind work? And so kind of medicine was sort of a natural calling for me. So I threw myself into that from the age of eight. And then when I was about 15 years old, my family immigrated to Chicago, and I came from this really wonderful, close-knit family um, and um, a lot of friends and security and stability, and it was a very traumatic event moving at the age of 15. Um, I felt uprooted. I felt um, 
like there was something different about me. I had this accent. I kind of, you know, it's the age when you're moving, when you're kind of wanting to fit in, 15, and you're so vulnerable. And I came from a small high school, went to this enormous American high school with thousands of kids and felt just different. And um, that there was something almost wrong with me. Um, and it was just, it was a very, very hard time of my life. I felt very anxious and insecure. And um, at that point, I think I really, I binged um, and I purged and I did things that were, I, I had an eating disorder and it was as I think a result of the incredible distress I was experiencing in my, my attempt to control things around me. So I went to the University of Chicago as an undergrad, and I was a good girl. I did not drink. I didn't like the taste of alcohol at all. Um, I didn't do any drugs at all. I just studied. University of Chicago is a place where they, it's a college that I don't know if, any, if you've heard, but it's a college where fun goes to die. It's not the college <laughs> where you go to have fun. It's not your typical college. It's like everyone's studying, although there were some people who drank, but I wasn't one of them. And I met my husband as a pre-med our freshman year. And so we kind of dated off through college um, and then went to medical school together, the two of us, and got married during medical school. Looking back, um, it was during medical school that I – you know, I'd always had insomnia from when I was a little girl. I'd struggled with my sleep, um, and I'd never really figured out any good way to cope with my insomnia. And so when I was in medical school, I would get really anxious before I would be on call. Like the night before I was on call, I'd get really worried. If I don't sleep tonight, how am I going to be of service to my patients, and how am I going to manage? And it would create more anxiety. And it was then that I started going to my parents' medicine cabinet, and I would help myself to their sleeping pills. Um, and I also had headaches, and so I took some of my dad's migraine pills. And um, it was at that point in my life that I um, first took pills that were not actually prescribed for me. Um, and so then I went through med school, and I went and I did a um, residency, and I did a fellowship and became an endocrinologist started a family and I had I have three beautiful children they're 25 and 24 and 19 and it was always really important to me um, because of this this desire to always be the best at everything to be a really great mom too and so I always tried to work part-time so I could be here for my children when they got home from school and then once they went to bed then I would work later to catch up on my charting and always trying to do the most for everybody, always trying to just be the best. Um, and I started a practice in endocrinology um, and stayed in this wonderful practice until I stopped practicing medicine when I came into recovery, which was in just four years ago last week, so in 2015, June of 2015. Um, and I really chose endocrine as a field because I just really loved kind of getting to know my patients and it gave me that opportunity. I really got to know my patients and I, I had viewed medicine as the, the practice of medicine as a calling and as a privilege. And I treated it as such. I, I, you know, when my patients came in, I gave them my full attention. I um, really tried to understand why they were there 
besides their physical complaints, what was going on at home, what were they experiencing emotionally. And I loved medicine. I loved the practice of medicine. The problem was that as I practiced medicine, um, over the years I practiced medicine, the practice changed tremendously. You know, there was introduction of electronic medical records that was incredibly stressful for me as I battled the computers and tried to figure out how to do it and managed to get through my patient visits fast enough. There was, you know, um, insurance companies were coming in. They were requiring us to do all these prior authorizations. So I was spending huge amounts of time on the phone trying to take care of um, those authorizations. And then there were the ability of patients to directly message um, their physicians. And being the kind of person I was, I felt like I had to answer those calls as quickly as possible. Um, and I wasn't, you know, I was really struggling with the ability to provide my patients the care that I thought was necessary for them and feeling like I was in some way violating my ethics, not doing the job that I thought my patients deserved, um, not being there for them in the way I wanted to. Um, and it was, a, you know, I would find that I was spending time charting, checking results, responding to my patient messages from my laptop in bed just before I would go to sleep at night. Um, and it was a huge challenge for me to set healthy limits with my patients um, and with work in general. Um, you know, I was the kind of doctor who gave some of, not all, but some of my patients my um, cell phone number, and people would call me on my cell phone, and I would take the calls, always trying to please um, everyone else and trying to please my patients. Um, and then when I was about 39, um, I had a panic attack. And I had, it was after like a really busy day and I was lying on the couch at home and my heart started becoming really irregular. And even though I was a doctor, I thought I was dying. And I called my husband over and I'm like, there's something seriously wrong. I think I, I, I am really dying. And he checked my pulse and it was irregular. We went to the hospital. They admitted me overnight and diagnosed me with generalized anxiety. And so I was put on medication and... Um, you know, I was given medication for my anxiety at that time, and I was given medication to help me sleep and medication for my headaches, way too much medication, stuff that I didn't need, really need, but I was given at that time. And I gladly took it. Um, and it helped my anxiety, and I did feel better um, for periods of time. Um, and then my anxiety would flare, I'd lose my appetite, and they would switch it to a different medication. Looking back, um, I can see that the, that the anxiety, now I can see that the anxiety really was the culmination of the years of kind of constant pushing, perfecting, improving myself that really um, resulted in this sense of like just anxiety and uneasiness, this internal uneasiness. And though everything looked great externally, I was just struggling internally. Um, you know, I, I had pushed myself to be the perfect mother, wife, daughter, physician, and it was just, it was, it was not really that, it wasn't sustainable. Um, so then about uh, probably, I think it was about maybe eight, nine years ago, I went on a vacation with my husband and I, um, <laughs> another injury, I hit the front brake of a bike and propelled myself over the pedals, broke my arm, ended up with a frozen shoulder and a lot of physical therapy, and I was prescribed Vicodin. 
And I did not know then that Vicodin had a different response. Well, I had a different response to Vicodin than most people do. And I was told when I went into treatment that this was um, called the magical connection. And that Vicodin for me, instead of, you know, just relieving my pain and making me feel, um, you know, making me maybe feel a little tired, which it does for most people, I got energized. I felt like I was normal, like everything was okay, that this was, uh, that this is how I was always supposed to feel. Um, and, you know, after, and, and was at the time, at, during those years where physicians were not careful and were not, not careful about the amount of Vicodin they were prescribing. So I collected a good amount of Vicodin um, from all my prescriptions, and I realized that I was actually um, had developed an addiction, that I was not taking the Vicodin for its prescribed, you know, the reason it was prescribed, which was my pain, but I was rather using it for anxiety and to give myself a boost and to make myself feel normal. And I told my husband that I thought I had an addiction, um, and at that point, I was taking maybe six pills a day, which was a lot. And I decided I was going to go through a withdrawal at home and just get rid of the Vicodin. So I threw it all away, and I went through a horrible withdrawal, felt absolutely dreadful, and swore to myself I would never become physically addicted to Vicodin again. So a number of years after that, um, unfortunately, my anxiety started to really, really escalate. And looking, and, and, it, and it was for a number of reasons. Um, one was that I was negotiating the challenges at work. Um, work was no longer a pleasure to me. It was really challenging. It was really hard, and I had a lot of anxiety at work and because of the electronic medical records and all the demands of uh, patients um, and my inability to set boundaries. Um, it was also due to the fact that my children were negotiating colleges and had gone to two of them had gone to college and it was also due to the fact that my elderly parents had health crises and um, trying to be there for them and then the last factor was that there had been a medication that the the psychiatrist had prescribed for me a long-acting what's called a long-acting benzodiazepine to help me sleep that I had been on for like 10 years and read had recently read reports that it could cause dementia. And I was concerned about that, and I wanted to come off that. And as I tried, with the help of my psychiatrist, to wean myself off the medication, my anxiety went off the roof. Um, and so I, at that particular time, I coincidentally ended up having dental work done, implants, and I got re-prescribed Vicodin. And the moment I took that Vicodin, it alleviated that unbearable anxiety and made me feel okay again. And um, even though I had vowed to myself I would never become physically addicted, so I really didn't take a lot of it, I had this perception that I needed that Vicodin at home in case something came up, in case I had a things were really bad and I needed it and I could use it for the anxiety amidst all the other medications I was taking at that time. And so looking back, um, what I did really is so out of character with the kind of person I am and my values, but I had an elderly patient that I used to visit, do home visits to, and I had prescribed Vicodin for her 
when I went to her bathroom, the Vicodin was in the bathroom and I took some of her pills. And I visited her a number of times over a period of, I think it was about a year. And it so happened that her son was a DEA agent. And um, there was a day where they called my office and asked me to write the prescription. And she called, they called back to say that she couldn't pick up the prescription, the actual hard-written prescription. Could I drop it off? And I went over to drop it off. And um, the DA had set up a sting. And, as I, and they videotaped me taking the pills out of her bottle. And I left that building and was surrounded by DA agents. And it was truly the most horrific day of my life. Um, I had not been acting in accordance with my values. I'd strayed far from the person that I truly was. Uh, my pedestal of perfection really was shattered. And it was time for me to, finally fa- to really finally face myself. Um, I think in some ways there was a relief that the secret was out, um, and, but in, I was really afraid and scared. And um, in many ways, I was also, I think, in denial. I thought that I would be back practicing medicine in a week. Um, you know, I called my partners and told them what had happened, and I will be back, and I'm going to be there. I just need to have a few days off. But really, the repercussions were much greater than I expected. Very rapidly after that, my medical license was suspended because I had given up my DEA license. Um, and so I was, it was recommended to me by the lawyer that was working with me to go into treatment. And so I did go into a treatment program. I went into that treatment program believing I was not an addict, believe it or not, um, thinking that because I was not physically addicted to Vicodin, how could I be an addict? And when I met with a physician in charge there, and he explained to me that addiction was continued use despite adverse consequences, I was like, yeah, I think I'm an addict. Uh, yes, I had continued doing things that, and had, that had pretty significant, very adverse consequences. And I decided that day that I was going to really learn and grow and understand the causes, the conditions that brought me and transform my life. And um, I made that decision that day. So I did everything that was told to me. I threw myself 100% into the program. I, um, you know, I went to AA, even though initially I was like, AA is for alcoholics and I'm an addict, but then I understood it was all the same disease. I got a sponsor. She was incredibly supportive to me and an unbelievably empathic person, just the right person for me. I got sponsees. I worked the 12 steps. And all along the way, I was trying to decide, you know, what am I going to do with my life now as I wait for my license to be returned to me? And is my license going to come back? And as the days went on, more and more things were taken away from me. Um, I, my malpractice insurance was removed. And then my... Um, Blue Cross, then uh, Medicare and Medicaid was removed and my boards were removed and a couple of years after um, this had all happened and as I was waiting I was, I'm a hard worker and a lifelong learner and I wanted to learn and grow and I wanted to learn about recovery and addiction and how could I serve people in, and I, I became interested in the question of how could I serve people in the area of recovery and just researched and looked around and was recommended to me to become a coach. 
And so I thought, wow, that sounds so interesting, and I would love to learn more about it. So I actually um, researched and found a coaching school and went through um, a coaching school, Crossroads Recovery Coaching, and did it online. It was a fantastic school and trained for a year. And um, in the meantime, I was then allowed to go before the medical board and ask for my license back. But I sat and thought deeply about it, and it was a very hard decision because I had so identified as a physician, and it was so hard to lose that part of my life, and yet my license was really of no use to me at that point. I couldn't really practice medicine. So much had been taken away, and I decided that this was a sign, you know, that the universe had sent me a sign that that part of my life was over. And that it was time for me to go in a different direction and that the direction was to be there to support other professionals in recovery and to help other um, people who had struggled like me and maybe um, be available to them even before they got to the point that I, that I reached so that they knew that there were resources out there for them um, and that because really I wondered, I would go back and think to myself, you know, why didn't I come forward sooner? Why didn't I seek help? And I think the reason for that was that there were a number, but one, I was ashamed um, that, I, that I hadn't remained abstinent. And two, I was really afraid as to what the effect would be on my medical license. I had a therapist, but I was too scared to tell her. And so I would want to be able to reach communities um, of, of people who are concerned about their license so that I could help them in that way and reduce the stigma of addiction in those communities. So I trained as a coach and I started my coaching. I you know, created a website and started my coaching, got certified by the Coaching Federation and started my coaching business. Um, and today that's what I do is I coach people either from a harm reduction standpoint, either seeking recovery or already in recovery um, and seeking to just strengthen their recovery and grow. And um, I just love it and feel like I've been given another chance to do something that just is so meaningful and that I enjoy every time I sit down with every client. So that's my it's, story. That's an amazing story. And thank you for sharing. I'm, I'm sure that that's hard to go back to that dark day um, mm. when – everything changed. But I'm glad you're willing to do that because it speaks to, I'm sure as you talk about it now, it almost seems like it wasn't you. <laughs> yeah. I, I suspect in those days you were um, not, so I, I feel like we get so far removed from who we are that by the time we're doing something, whether it's, you know, driving a child when we're under the influence or doing something like you did, you know, and violating an ethic mm -hmm. that you would never imagine violating. Um, it, it's, I, I, I imagine it to be almost trance-like to be doing that. Is that how it felt or what, what was that feeling like to be you on that day? I think, I mean, I remember that day very clearly um, and I was in a very, I was, I felt trapped. 
I was feeling like I was trapped in an addiction that I did not know how to get out of. Um, I felt as if I didn't really feel, um, I felt I wasn't whole. I didn't feel like a whole human being. I didn't feel like who I, a grounded, um, centered person. I was so veered so far off course. Um, you know, I, I'd, spent so, I'd spent so much time writing on pieces of paper how I was going to get off the pills. You know, much time was spent, like I'll take a quarter of this pill and a bit of that because I was on this, you know, this benzodiazepine. And I'll try a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And if I withdraw this and withdraw that, then maybe I'll be able to eventually come off. And, and I would just desperate. I desperately wanted to be out of this trap, but I didn't know how to get out of it. Um, and yeah, I think I was, it was like a trans-like state. It wasn't who I was. It, I was mm-hmm. not, it was not me. It was not who I am at all. And, um, you know, it's just a very strange, it's just strange to think back to that day and think, that I was the person who did it, you know. I'm so different now than I was then. Changed Looking back on it, profound ways. do you feel like you were at all relieved to be caught? Mm-hmm. Hugely relieved. Oh. Hugely. I mean, obviously I didn't want to be caught in that way. And, mm-hmm. they, you know, that isn't exactly... I. That was definitely not the way I would have wanted to have been caught, but who gets to choose that? In a way, I think it was, it was a, a message because what crazier kind of situation could there have been than that particular patient's son was a DEA agent? You know, it just is so, it just seems so random that that actually happened in that way. So I feel like it was kind of a mess. It was definitely a message. Um, mm-hmm. that, and, it w- and it was sent to me to, to stop me and save me. You know, to really mm-hmm. say, and, and I was given a second chance in my life today. I mean, I, I had a beautiful life, but I didn't appreciate it. I had, mm-hmm. I had a husband who has stood by me all the time, who was my best friend from when I was 18 years old and who is a very honest man. And I had you know, he's never kept secrets from me. And so the idea that I had kept a secret from him was very hard for him. And it took him a while to get over, you know, it took him not a long time, but it took him some time to understand how trapped I had felt. And then he was able to stand by me and really support me. And I had these wonderful things in my life, like three beautiful children and, you know, parents who, who loved me. And I had difficult things, boundaries I had to set and things like that, but I had I had all these gifts and I couldn't see them. I couldn't tap into them. And I'm able to now. You know, now I appreciate those things so much more and um have so much gratitude for for what I have in my life, which I didn't before because I was so trapped in this awful addiction. I couldn't see what was in front of me. You know, Do day you... by day. Do you see anything like now that you're um working on healing yourself and and you have so much insight into recovery do you feel that your addiction was strictly a physical addiction or do you see that you were set up psychologically and emotionally to have you know that feeling of unwholeness or to be susceptible to addiction in mm, the first place great question no i think i was 
always set up to be an addict from a very young age. I think from a very young age, I always had a sense. I always had a feeling like something was missing, that there was something more and I didn't know what it was, that, um, and I had a very, I was intolerant of discomfort. I, I veered away from discomfort as fast as I could. So, you know, the feeling of um, anxiety for me was really challenging and insomnia. Those, the, the feeling of the inability to sleep and the inability to be with uncomfortable feelings were, I, I think, a big driver of my addiction. So I, don't, I think the, the Vicodin helped those feelings, and that's, what, you know, that's how I got into the addiction. But I definitely think I always had the propensity towards it, the, the idea that I wanted to escape discomfort, you know, that I couldn't sit with it. I, and, and in recovery, what has helped me tremendously is meditation and um, I was teaching, I was been teaching meditation and mindfulness at the treatment program that I went through because it made such a difference in my recovery. So, the, so for me, the ability to like actually sit with discomfort and uncomfortable feelings and see that they come and they go and they change and they don't last and um, is amazing, powerful. Mm. Like, wow, I can be with this and I don't have to act on it and it's not going to kill me. You know, I'm not going to die from it. It's uncomfortable, but it's okay. Discomfort is okay. I I can get through it. I don't have to change it. Has that reduced your anxiety? Is meditation your main treatment for anxiety now? I barely have anxiety. It's crazy. Like the terrible anxiety I used to have is so much, it's almost gone it's almost gone. Like I will get it sometimes, but never to the degree I ever had it. It's like normal anxiety now, anxiety that comes and goes. And, even, and I think it's because I don't resist it so much. I think that's a part right. of it, a big part of it, is that I don't The resist. anxiety for the anxiety? <laughs> yes, right. Oh, no, I'm getting anxious. So much, anxiety. <laughs> so much anxiety about the anxiety. And that's like, yeah, and Another thing, like what I do also, what I learned, which I found so powerful, was the idea of, of um, surfing the urge. I don't know if you've heard, you've heard of that, but like being with cravings and urges and just viewing them as like a wave, like an ocean wave, and you just kind of, you just surf it. So as it comes, I just kind of watch and see, and I help my clients with this as well, surf their urges, like feel See that a craving is just an urge that it comes, it gets intense. That's when people usually act is when it's most intense, but that's the moment before it crashes and it, mm. and it goes away. And people act when it's that intense, but we can just watch it and observe it and we don't have to act on it. So if you can just hang in there for a few moments longer, right. it'll just keep abate. going. Just be with it and with and also what's very important, I think, is to do it all with a, with a acts of kindness, with an um, intention of kindness. Towards yourself. Towards yourself. Yes. Does your recovery, different. your sobriety from drugs, does that include being alcohol-free? Or what does sobriety mean for you? Yes. Yeah, so 
as a physician, when I came into recovery, physicians are monitored by the state. Um, and regardless, you're monitored for five years. So in order to get your license back, you're monitored for five years. And that means being abstinent from all substances, you know, all addictive substances. So it's anything, Benadryl, um, alcohol, any um, controlled substance. So it's completely abstinent for five years. And during that time, you're randomly monitored where you get on the computer and you check. And if you're called in, you give a urine sample. And physicians are actually very successful in their recoveries um, with, very few, with very low relapse rates because of the significant, you know, because of the monitoring and the accountability on their licenses. So, mm-hmm. yes, that is so. And, and the issue is just the, the issue is cross addictions and, you know, mm-hmm. would you become addicted to something else mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. later? Yeah. Do you talk to your kids about addiction, recovery, prevention, predisposition, all of those things? What does that conversation look like in your house with your family? So we're very open in my house. Um, my kids have been a very big part of my recovery. You know, they knew from the very start everything that happened. Nothing was kept from them. I, I was completely open with them. Um, and to, they are aware, one of my daughters is in medical school um, as well. They are, and, and has done a lot of work herself on self-care, which I had none of, and which she is much better at than I am, and which we are very aware of how important it is to take care of oneself and that you cannot take care of others if you're not taking care of yourself. But what we talk about in my family is just, I don't tell my children you can't drink. I don't tell my children because I don't have that ability to control my children. I tell my children that they're at risk of addiction because I had an addiction that they need to be careful, that they need to be, that they need to be aware, they're aware of the risk, and that I am here for them if they need any help, and that I understand and that I'm open, and we're very open and communicative, and that's very important to me. That's fantastic. So I'm not restricting them. I'm not restricting them. I can't. That isn't just, you know, we don't have that control over other people. No, but we provide a lesson to them, right? And I think that's so important. Yes. You know, my yes. I never saw my father um, active in his alcoholism. He was sober since before I was born. but mm. and, and he didn't talk about it a whole lot, but he modeled for me what recovery looked like. And I think it really helped me, even though it was hard to admit when I developed a problem, it helped me know what to do because I had just seen it in action throughout my life and I just feel that that's such a lovely thing as a parent in recovery mm-hmm. that that we're modeling for the next generation what the solution looks like because as you say we can't we can't learn their lessons for them I mean no. uh, otherwise <laughs> we, we would to, but we can't <laughs> right either the cycle would be broken happen. otherwise uh, recovery coaches would be out of business, which would be great. I know that that's that's probably your goal, and every recovery coach's goal is to say, right. "I would love to have everyone in the world be so well adjusted that they didn't need podcasts like the Bubble Hour and and um, and right. help sorting things out." And yet, um, 
the, the way we do that is by continuing to model. Well, the, your daughter being in med school then, this is interesting because this brings me to my next question. And yeah. I realize it almost answers it at the same time. I was going to say that you're no longer practicing as a physician, but you bring all that expertise into recovery coaching. And that I would imagine gives you a really well-rounded perspective, but it makes me wonder what you think, how our medical care would be transformed if physicians had the knowledge you have now as a recovery coach, um, mm. just thinking about the fact that it was a prescription and that you were over-prescribed in the first place. I mean, how do you think that our health system would be transformed if doctors and the profession in general had a greater understanding of recovery. And now I'm realizing as I ask you that, that your daughter will have a perspective on this going into (laughs) her career. She's going to go to Hazelden this summer as a physician's um, special program that they have for medical students, which is fantastic to just get the experience of what it's like to be in the, in the center, in the um, treatment center. So she's going to just to get that experience. Listeners that don't know Hazelden is a, Oh, sorry. It's a very famous um, treatment center and program. And in fact, it's now connected with the Betty Ford Center, I believe, as well. So what an amazing experience for her. So tell me your thoughts on that, about the two schools of thought. So I think that there is a long way to go still in the medical community to understanding um, addiction and to reducing the stigma around addiction. I think that there... I mean, there's so many facets to this. I think that um, there has been tremendous, there's been progress. I'm not going to say tremendous. There's been progress in understanding for sure about opioids. Um, And there's been um, changes in the prescription behavior of physicians. So for a period of time, their physicians were just prescribing opioids and not even a and, and it was, there were many reasons behind that, and I, I don't, won't get into all of those, but there was not a great understanding of the addictive quality of opioids, and there was too much prescription of them. And that is changing, thank God. There is definitely a move towards less prescription. There's still physicians that are not aware of it and still need education. Um, there is too much prescribing of drugs in our country in general, like Xanax and, you know, um, those drugs that are used for anxiety, and there's not a great understanding. And psychiatrists are still prescribing a lot of those drugs, not all psychiatrists, but some. And And ones that I should not have been on and would have been better off not being on, and I could have coped without them, but that was just given them. So there has to be a change in that, in that arena for sure. I think that there is a move towards educating a tiny bit, you know, a little more education, like in my daughter's medical school curriculum on addiction. We had none when I was in medical school. There was, it wasn't ever discussed. We had nothing on addiction, nothing on alcoholism. We saw alcoholics. We thought they were, you know, we didn't treat them very well. We didn't really understand the disease at all. We just knew the medical consequences of the disease. We didn't understand anything beside that. Um, so I think there is somewhat of a movement towards that, but there's still tremendous um, steps that need to be taken towards educating physicians on 
I just even asking questions of patients that are coming in to their offices, just in the office. They physicians have a lot of power, right? To actually have an impact on someone's life. They get to ask people very important questions. And if they just asked some questions about um things like, you know, just even are you drinking? I don't think I when I've been to a physician, I've never even been asked you know, how much I drank from some of my physicians or, you know, in the past. Things, just basic questions that could be asked that aren't being asked right now. I, I do think there's a lot of movement that needs to be had. You mentioned harm reduction, and that, yeah. that is something you uh, specialize in. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so... Um, I will, so harm reduction is really working with people to um, try to reduce the harm of the drug that they are using. So um, the typical idea of harm reduction is things like um, with heroin users, making sure that uh, we're prescribed, we're you're trying to get them good needles that aren't, that are clean or um, so they're not using, you know, infected needles and getting HIV, or making sure that they're getting Narcan so that they don't overdose, so that there are drugs available for overdose, um, and so we can save their lives, and then we can get them into treatment. Um, and from an alcohol perspective, I will work with people, um, not necessarily, some people are not going to become abstinent, but they want to moderate. They want to learn how to moderate the alcohol intake, and you, you know, maybe you have two drinks a week or three drinks a week, and some people are able to do that. Um, and so I will work with them to do that. Or it can be also just using, um, making sure that that person's never drinking and driving, you know, things like that. So it's making sure that whatever you're doing, you're not doing it in a harmful way, you're reducing the harm associated with the mm-hmm. um, addiction. I feel like a lot of listeners to this program have attempted harm reduction and couldn't Mm -hmm. do it. Certainly that Mm -hmm. was my experience was that, and you talked about that yourself, about trying to manage it and trying to plan it on paper. Um, Is that something that you feel like, do you you find for people that if they try harm reduction, specifically with alcohol, because I feel like maybe with drugs it's different, I don't know. But do, mm-hmm. do people sometimes start out trying to do harm reduction and realize abstinence is the better path for them or vice versa? Yes, I think that majority, from what I've seen from the people who have come through, some people are um, try the harm reduction and the effort and the, the effort it requires and how hard it becomes for them to kind of control their drinking, they just decide, some people just decide, no, that's not worth it. I'm just going to go for abstinence. You know, there's, it's just so challenging and so difficult and they're so miserable doing it that they mm-hmm. end up just going for abstinence. It's just, it just is better for them. Um, and some people, I, and I found quite a few people like that. And there's a ha- small handful of people who have managed to just do it. But I would say the majority of people that I've seen and I don't know if this is true of everybody, end up deciding that they're going to go for abstinence, that the harm mm-hmm. reduction doesn't really work for them as, as regards alcohol. But, but it, is really a good, it is a good place to yeah. start, right? It can help right. people at least get started. And, right, um, so it's getting them in the door and like 
meeting them where they're at. So they may not be ready right. at the beginning, right? But as you work right. with them, then they change, that people change their ideas. And they say, see that, well, I, I could actually maybe do this with support and in the, in going to programs or maybe getting support through support groups and, and you know, starting to accept that they may have a more serious problem than they thought they did at the beginning. And through through time, over time, people change. That they don't come in at all, and I won't. And I only take people who want only abstinence. I just that doesn't feel right to me. Like I'm mm-hmm. willing to work with people who are not who are, who are thinking that they want harm reduction, and then we'll work and we'll see what happens. Maybe it will work, but and if it doesn't, we'll go for abstinence. Now, even after all these years of doing the bubble hour, I'm still sorting out some of the terminology and and learning what different things mm-hmm. mean. So it took me a long time to even learn the difference between detox, rehab, and outpatient. And um, <laughs> I've got that under control. But harm reduction is still, um, I'm still wrapping my head around some aspects mm-hmm. of it. So would methadone or suboxone, are those considered mm-hmm. harm reduction? So yeah. can you talk those about are, some of those replacement those types are, of... So they're medically, those are actually some medical assisted, they could be considered also medically assisted treatments. So mm-hmm. it's part of it's medication assisted treatment. So Suboxone is going to be, and methadone are going to help with um, cravings. Um, Suboxone in particular helps a lot with people with their cravings. And so there's, there's, um, controversy for sure um, in certain treatment programs are really abstinence based treatment programs will not give suboxone mm-hmm. so when there's mm-hmm. this significant so and some they'll give Vivitrol you know those in, other injections like not, naltrexone and Vivitrol is allowed but not in suboxone but there are many people and I'm one of them who believe that suboxone really helps people with their cravings and then they can have, they can get back their lives while they're not craving. They can then get back the life that they've lost. And during that period of, t- and isn't that what we want? We want people to be able to get back lives, live their lives again. So people on Suboxone then can get their jobs back and they can reestablish their families. If you're craving all the time and the cravings from heroin withdrawal are terrible, um, if you're having that kind of craving, you can't, you can't, do the things you you can't get a job back. You know, you can't do all of that because all you're focused on is your craving and you're struggling to just not use. If you remove mm-hmm. that from the equation, they then can start all the other things like the therapy and the um, self-help groups and the NA and the um, meeting with coaches and doing all the other things that they, that they need. And to me, that's, that's more important than, making them be abstinent and making people, not allowing people to use things like Suboxone. I feel like that, you know, the the bottom line of this conversation that we're having, which, by the way, I have to say the disclaimer that we're not giving advice to anyone or anything, but I'm asking for information because it's just also interesting for me. But I feel like mm-hmm. the bottom line to what you're saying is that talk to your doctor, understand your options, and that there seems to be a new level of sort of compassion and regard for the humanity of the addict that's beginning to emerge versus the sort of tough love, just say no to drugs of the eighties and nineties of Mm -hmm. the idea of like, you know, if there's an addict in your life, 
you need to cut them out of your life and tell them they can come back when they're clean and sober. And we're sort of moving towards this understanding of what you just said. It was like, you know, if we can, if we can buy you a little time to help you get enough of your life back to help you start to desire to live again. And it's that will to live that helps you find recovery. It just seems to me that there's, it's a movement towards compassion. Do you feel like that's the direction we're going? I'm really hopeful that it is. I feel like there is a change that more, you know, I've been to talks more recently about Suboxone and, um, you know, where they've said things like, yeah, you know, why don't we just let people stay on this for the rest of their lives? Why not? What harm is it going to do them if they can live a good life and they can be useful in society and they can have a life? Why do we not do this? Yes. And that's compassionate. To me, I'm really hopeful that we're, we're moving in that direction um, because that's, that's, that's a big part of who I am. I mean, my, my whole purpose in life is to help others who are suffering, right? And that's what compassion is, is to alleviate the suffering of others. And that's what I want to do. That's my mission. So I hope that we are moving in that direction. Well, yeah. Well, I think with more people like you, this is how we, this is how it happens. Um, right. It's, it's from learning and listening and, um, mm-hmm. and taking our dark moments and turning them into mm-hmm. um, knowledge and help for others. In the moments that right. are left today, Vanessa, I want to talk about yeah. shame and stigma because yeah. I'm assuming that that is a big obstacle for you with the people that you help. Um, I feel like that for a lot of the women I talk to and men as well, yeah. it's that shame and stigma that keeps them from asking for help because they're afraid to confess or confront. Um, How do you help people move past that? Yeah, so that's a really, that is a big part of what I do. And I've done a lot of work on looking at shame and understanding shame and trying to see like what is the antidote for shame. And a lot of what I do and what I think is so important is I think there are a couple of things. I think that um, shame lives in silence um, and in secrecy. And so a part of it is to be able to talk our shame and to get it out and to be able to open up about those secrets. And the way we do that is through groups that accept us, like AA or NA or Refuge Recovery or whatever group, um, or Facebook groups, um, like she recovers and those kinds of groups. Um, And I think um, the other thing that I do a lot is work with people and what can heal shame is self-compassion. And I do a lot of work on teaching people um, how to extend compassion to themselves. And there are steps to doing it and learning how to do it, of how to be aware when you're suffering and how to extend kindness to yourself when you are suffering and to know that you're not the only person suffering, that everyone suffers, that we all suffer at some point in our lives. And that helps to, um, that really helps to soften the shame and, um, and ease those like really dark feelings. And that's something I do. I do try and teach all of my clients how to do that because it's, it's such a powerful practice um, in dealing with shame. Hmm. 
I want to just um, ask in the last few seconds before we go here, yeah. Um, yeah. for someone who's listening today who's just really struggling, but here's some hope in talking mm-hmm. with you. What's your advice for mm-hmm. someone who just wants to get started? Where do they start today? If they want to get started um, in making a change in, mm-hmm, in 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 whether it's addiction, um, alcohol addiction, drug addiction, or okay. you know, an, it, making a change towards recovery, whatever the ism is, what do you feel are the are the sort of first steps that we need to do to get there? Um, the reach out for help. Um, so figuring out who you can reach out to. So. Um, whether it is, and I think it really depends on where you're at in that in that ism that you're in, but reaching out either to a group or to a therapist or to a coach, um, reaching out to someone who is going to be there to help guide you um, and be a place for you to open, a place where you can honestly open up and and speak and talk about what's going on and then make steps forward from that point. So you're just first acknowledging and honestly that you have a problem and then with someone who you can trust, whether that is a group, whether that is a coach, or whether that is a therapist who can then guide you and help guide you towards your next steps, be there for you. That's great advice. Thank you. How can our listeners find you and learn more about you? So they can look. I have a website that's called resiliencerecoverycoaching.com, and there's a way that they can contact me there, and um, we can have a call and just see what's going on and how I can support them. Well, I thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your story with us today. I love that you are so open about talking about something that's been really difficult and the way that you've turned it around and are using it to help other people. I don't even like to say turned it around. Um, I feel like you, you brought the darkness to the light and just fulfilled, used it to fulfill, you know, your, your calling and your, your, your life's meaning. So I'm thanking you so much for being here today and, um, and thank you for your service to people in recovery. Well, thank you so much, Jean. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Uh, listeners, this has been Vanessa Klugman of Resilience Recovery Coaching has been my guest today. I hope that everyone learned a little something from our discussion. And uh, until next time, everyone, please take good care. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. Weakness head on me. In a dark corner is where shame lies behind. We think you're strong. You keep 
my path. 